where the voluntary discomfort part comes in is this question of, well, what do you do when there's no outside stressor? And I think there is this real question of, can you develop a practice where you're willing to endure the voluntary pain or suffering in order to produce some effect that will make you happier and stronger later? And I think that's something that's very not easy to do, but to me feels like it fits very much within Stoic philosophy, um, as well as other ancient Greek philosophies too. You know, they, they mm. also had ideas about sort of enlightened hedonism where you're actually not just doing the most pleasurable thing in every moment, right? Welcome to Stoic Conversations. In this podcast, Michael Tremblay and I discuss the theory and practice of Stoicism. Each week, we'll share two conversations, one between the two of us, and another will be an in-depth conversation with an expert. And in this conversation, I speak with Will Eden. Will is a recovering economist turned biotech venture capitalist. He's currently entrepreneur in residence at Ulysses Diversified Holdings. Before that, he worked at Teal Capital. We talk about a range of topics here, the importance of history, whether Rome is a good analogy to the political situation today, stoicism, voluntary discomfort, negative visualization, and COVID. This wide-ranging conversation is a great intro to Will's epistemic virtues, the thinking style of someone who cares about carefully figuring out what is going on. If you'd like to learn more about Will, you can find him on Twitter at William A. Eden or at becomingeden.com. And here is our conversation. So let's start with a big one up front. How actionable is history? It's funny that you say that this is like the really big one. <laughs> I feel like in some ways, it's almost like a marginal question because almost no one seems to think about it or care. I've been trying to give some thought about how to discuss this. And I thought of a framing of it, which is helpful. Suppose you want to invest in the stock market. Is it actionable to learn any history about, you know, say what the stock market has done over the last hundred years? Yes, yes, of course. At well, some why, history, at some level. Right. If you really believe the strictest form of the efficient markets hypothesis, right? The current price contains all of the information throughout history, and the price should be just as likely from here to go up or down. So why would you ever have to learn, right? Like, what would you gain by, by knowing, you know, what the markets have done for one century, say? Yeah, yeah. I guess the assumption is you... I would probably deny the efficient market hypothesis. At least when it comes to history, it seems like not all the information is factored in. Maybe not, it's not as true in the financial case, but if you want to zoom out and talk about the history case, maybe it is more true there. Well, I would actually argue that it's also true for markets too. For one thing, if you look at the prices of stocks, for instance, they tend to go up quite a bit more than every other assets class, more than bonds, more than gold. And if you don't take that sort of long-term view, you don't even realize that there's a puzzle there. And if you look at the actual like investing advice that we get, 
It's, oh, you should just put all of your money into the stock market, maybe until you're, you know, 60 or something. But you wouldn't know that unless you actually went back and looked at the history. And that is a strategy that just radically out, like, out, like, performs everything. And it's not even close, right? So right off the bat, just the very basic investing advice that we get is based on this historical abnormality, which is that you make more money if you put money in stocks. So I would just argue right off the bat, the answer is you can clearly learn something. The next question is, what exactly can you learn? Because ultimately, that's a very high level thing. So maybe the answer is, you know, you can learn some some very high level patterns, but history is never going to exactly repeat itself. And I think you need to avoid drawing a parallel that's just a little bit too close. So one thing that you wouldn't want to do is say, okay, well, the stock market did exactly this in 2000. And I think it's going to do exactly that same thing right now. You will certainly be wrong. It's definitely not going to do the exact same thing. And I think folks who look at history also know this because as they say, history doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme. And I think then the question is, you actually need to develop a better model of what are the relevant features, right? And I think once you really drill down into which features you think are universal, which features you think are going to actually persist, and which features you think are sort of more contingent at that time, then you can actually start to extract lessons there, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. That seems plausible. So just one way to make it more concrete is often I'll bump into people, say, in San Francisco, they're uh, quite focused on working on <laughs> their startup, what have you. And if you wanted to describe their attitudes towards history friendly, in a friendly manner, you'd say they're very focused on working on a startup. If you wanted to be less friendly, you could say they're essentially Philistines. <laughs> you know, they know, you know. And why would you waste time on on history anyway? So what's your general approach? Like, is it useful for like the kind of person who's especially focused in their day-to-day practical project to have a knowledge base of facts that maybe are even slightly outside of their their industry or go back to periods in history on the order of thousands of years ago how would you how would you frame right. that, that that sort of issue so i think for a startup founder in particular some of what they have to do is be extremely focused on the exact problem that they're trying to solve that's right in front of them right in many ways as a startup founder you don't want to get distracted So I think there is like a reasonable case that a startup founder probably doesn't need to know 2000 years of history to be much better at their job. Arguably, you don't even want them to be focused on that. I think if you take the outside view of a startup, the answer is the startup is almost certainly going to fail. And in a weird way, if you're a founder and you learn a bunch of history about startups, you're probably more likely to think that you're going to fail, which is going to actually make you more likely to fail. You could do bias search, right? I do know lots of founders who, in fact, study the successful founders. And I think there is a question there of, can founders actually learn something from other founders who were successful in the past? And I would say that the argument in 
zero to one is that the answer is kind of. Like if you read zero to one, it's trying to lay out a bunch of general rules for what makes a successful startup at the exact same time that he says every successful startup is kind of special and kind of different. <laughs> right. So I feel like the study of the history of startups itself kind of contains that contradiction. But here's where I actually would say learning a little bit of history is directly actionable for founders. And that's about the funding cycle. And what I've noticed with a lot of founders over the last 15 years, they've never really experienced a downturn. Not, not like a really, really big one. And I think that has affected the way that the entire field operates. And in particular, there is just this baseline assumption that most founders have, which is you can raise money every year to two years at at least a slightly higher valuation, if not a much higher one, and that money is basically there. And we're about to see that dry up. I mean, we are sort of in the process of really the first market downturn wasn't, you know, an extremely short-lived spike from COVID. We've basically had in 15 years. And I think that a lot of the founders today are really badly positioned. And I think that if they'd done a little bit more study about what funding was like in 2000, 2008, I think they would have been much more likely to build up a big war chest when the funding was good and would have been less likely to burn through it quite as much. Now, would that have maybe slowed their growth overall? Would that have been a good strategy 10 years ago? Maybe not. But I would argue that the point of history isn't showing you how to best thrive in the current environment. It's about giving you a reasonable probability distribution of what the future environment might look like. And I think for a founder that doesn't put at least some probability on, there's going to be a downturn. What could I do to survive in a downturn? Even if you think a downturn is only 10% likely or something like that, that's a 10% chance of just absolute failure. That's pretty bad. So I think even for someone who is, you know, laser focused on a startup, at least you need to understand what is the reasonable possibilities of what you might face over the course of, you know, the next 10 years. And that's going to be a lot more variable than you might think, unless you've just lived through some sort of like crazy event. Right, right. Uh, perhaps one general lesson from history is that the good times are very fragile. What do you think about that? <laughs> yeah, I think that it's, I think it's tricky. I definitely would say as, as I've gotten older and as I've just seen more things happen in the world, I would say when I was a teenager, I was more of like both optimistic and more of an accelerationist in that like, I basically thought that Things that can't really continue won't, and they'll collapse. But the basic system that we have in place will probably rebuild something that's a little bit more functional. Now, I think it's a little hit or miss. And I think that if you look at the broadest sweep of history, most downturns and even most collapses are relatively local and relatively short-lived. You might have a really bad generation 
maybe even two or something. But like generally you could expect like your grandkids or at least your grandkids are probably doing somewhat better. And that was true for like many, many, many centuries. But then there is also these instances of collapse that there is no recovery from or one that isn't really truly surpassed for, you know, hundreds or a thousand years. So in short, I think with something sort of as complex as our current system is, I think it is both fragile and that there is the possibility of a truly catastrophic collapse. And I also think that within a very wide range of operating parameters, we are going to reconfigure to at least something vaguely functional, if not like, you know, much, much better. Got it. Got it. I see. So it's a mix of mix of optimism with some expectation of, or at least if not an expectation, a serious possibility of something close to collapse. Yeah, I think that I think that we have to be mindful and wary of the fact that a collapse is possible. And that might be a 0.1% chance, that might be a 10% chance. But like, I think that the right thing to do is to have non zero thought and planning to the really bad scenarios. I just think mm -hmm. that that's a very prudent thing to do if you look at the broad sweep of history, even if you think that it's not the most likely outcome, if we could prevent, you know, another period of centuries where humanity is, you know, trying to kill each other with like bows and arrows and spears, that would be hugely valuable, hugely valuable. So analogy people always come back to, especially when they're thinking about collapse, renewal, revolution Rome. is the, yes, of course, is the late Republic of Rome. And since this is a stoic podcast, we need to ask about Rome and what you think about how useful this analogy, you know, going back to analogies involving Sulla, Marius, Cato, and of course, Caesar. Is. Oh, yeah. Lots of thoughts on that. Yeah. One thing that I think is a little bit that I would say is underrated about Rome is that it actually had a bunch of really meaningful transition. I would argue that over the, you know, thousand year history of Rome in the West, it really had a few major periods. And there was a period of sort of crisis and chaos and collapse at the end of all of them. But the question is just what sort of came out of that. So you have the transition from the kingdom. And we know very little about what life was like back then. Certainly there were some kings and they were overthrown and people seem really happy about their early republic period. So I'd say that was a like transition in Rome seemingly went well, but also, you know, we don't have really good firsthand accounts of what went down. It's possible that was a very like horrible, chaotic time. Also, then you have the late republic, which is specifically what you asked about. And I think that that one's a super fascinating one. Because if you lived in any of, let's say, the three generations prior to the end, you probably thought life was pretty bad. You were involved in nonstop warfare, street violence, mass murders when one side won or the other. Uh, there's a very reasonable chance that you were, you know, basically conscripted from your farm and sent off to war and you come back and someone has like bought your farm out from under you because you weren't home. Like, horrible things were happening and life was very bad. And the reason that right. I find this super interesting is the late Republic did collapse. But the early Roman Empire, I think, was actually perceived as a great improvement, actually. 
And I don't think that it necessarily had to go that way. I've tried to give this lots of thought. And it is a little bit weird. that The first Roman emperor lived for a shockingly long time, much longer than most of his successors did. <laughs> and I do wonder, you know, if Octavian had, say, died five years into his reign, we might not even have the Roman Empire. I, I could have seen a situation where the Senate asserted control again, where there could have been another massive civil war straight out of the gates. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, what we actually saw was a pretty long and peaceful reign for quite some time. Really was, you know, centuries until Rome was once again kind of somewhat existentially threatened and, you know, torn by like a lot of civil war. And that's a pretty good run. It's easy to sort of see that as kind of like the blink of an eye, but, you know, you're like, you could think about how your children's 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 children just like didn't know conflict. Like that's way better than what you had prior to the so-called collapse. Right. So I think that there is a lesson there, which is there are these periods of great upheaval but they aren't necessarily always absolutely terrible once you manage to come out the other side. I think that's really path dependent and it's a little bit hard to tell. So if you're already in a situation that's, you know, really, really, really bad, it's possible the transition can actually make things better. Whereas if you're in a situation that's kind of okay and there's a violent transition, you know, I, I certainly wouldn't put good odds on the next thing being good. But I do think we, we have to at least acknowledge that for the average person, early empire was just better than the late Republican era. They recently spoke with Jimmy Sony, who wrote The Founders. His earlier book was on Cato the Younger. And he said, I asked him about Cato's early life. And he said that, oh, you should sort of see it as one of those Star Wars opening sequences where there's a list of all these terrible things that have happened (laughs) before before he came into the world, which I thought was, was really nice. Yeah, very, very much so. Um, yeah, that is not a period of time that I would voluntarily choose to born into. Let's just say that. Right, right. But sorry, I interrupted. So you've got these other transitions in Rome. I would argue that that Rome then went through two more phase transitions. Yeah, so then you had the crisis of the third century. And if you look at, at the Roman Empire before that and after that, they basically completely reorganized the whole system. And it went from looking like the kind of ancient Roman Empire that we know of to something that looked a lot more like the early stages of feudalism. Mm-hmm. And that was clearly a crisis and a collapse that I would argue made life on most metrics, but not all metrics, substantially worse than it was prior to that period. On the flip side, it did sort of stabilize the empire. And if you were in the core, you probably, you know, didn't have a horrible transition and you probably had a couple more pretty good centuries. But if you look, especially at kind of the like periphery of the empire and the kind of lives that folks tended to lead there, I would argue that after the third century, life was clearly worse than it was before. And it was really a transition that kept the whole thing kind of holding together for a couple more centuries, more than that actually sort of fixed the problems. So I would argue that was a a transition that was actually quite bad. And then there was the final fall, right? And that 
it's almost impossible to argue that anyone's life was significantly better off at that point. I do know that there's a lot of historical revisionism and people don't want to use the term the dark ages. And I get all of those arguments, but if you just look objective metrics, like the height of the people that lived in those areas, they all shrank. Clearly life was much, much harder and much, much worse. And that's the collapse that I think most people kind of think of. And the one mm -hmm. that folks focus on is like, that was truly catastrophic. I would argue none of the other transitions were truly catastrophic. Some of them things got better. Some of them things got worse. They were really crappy to kind of live through, but that was the one that really ended things. Really. And that's the kind of thing that I think people are worried about today. Right, right. I mean, I suppose there is always what, what you mentioned earlier, there is always that question of contingency with the fall of the late Republic, where you end up with Octavian or Augustus, who seems like exceptionally bureaucratically competent. He has Absolutely. Agrippa next to him, who is exceptionally competent. But you imagine, oh, if it had been a different party, maybe if it had been Mark Antony who won, then Indeed. probably your hopes <laughs> for the, the empire are not, not as high. Indeed. And I think that's why it is useful to look at a, a wide range of these major transitions in society. And you find that it's a pretty uneven distribution. There, there are a lot that have actually gone pretty well, and there are a lot that have gone horrifically bad. <laughs> right? and, uh, and I think that from my perspective, that has actually led me to be a little bit more conservative. I don't think we can just assume that if we're going to undergo a massive transition today, that it's definitely transitioning into a state that is better. I think it is useful to remember that we might transition into a state that's better. And it's very easy to see all of the things that are wrong with the current system. But the way that I feel right now is things are not working great. And the risk of a larger collapse is absolutely there. But like, do I see the preconditions for a like peaceful a transition to a new system? Also, no. <laughs> so that makes me a little bit hesitant to say, like, radically overhaul the United States or something. We still have something that kind of works, even if it, it works poorly. And there's something to be said for, like, maybe we need to keep this thing limping along for another, you know, 20 years or something. Is there a specific reason why you chose 20? Just because I think that's, like, a reasonable time frame. Yeah. So, like... I would say right around when the financial crisis happened, like that was probably when I was my most like sort of doomer. And I was privately telling people like, yeah, the US maybe has like 20 more good years. And it wasn't much more than 10 years after we sort of came out of that crisis that we then had the COVID thing. And I think that a lot of people who I've talked to over the years have definitely updated a little more towards my position. Which isn't a good thing. I do think that 20 years was sort of overly pessimistic. I did uh -huh. try to go back and look at sort of how long societies take to actually collapse. And it's really tricky to answer that largely because when do you date the start of the fall? Like that, that is actually a, a surprisingly difficult question. Like I think that if things fell apart right now, I think future historians would look back and be like, the 1970s were the start. Whereas if things collapse in like 40 years from now, I think people might be like the financial crisis was the start or, right. or some, or something that happened, you know, 
20 years from now or something. But overall, I've tried to take a pretty wide view of this. And the answer is usually things can take a lot longer than you think. These things play out generally quite a bit more gradually than it feels like when you just read a history. I couldn't really find like total collapses of civilizations faster than like 10 years. And that usually required some like overwhelming foreign power like coming in and like physically conquering something. If you look at purely endogenous collapses, I would say like 20, 40, even up to like 80 years. There can actually be these extremely long periods of just gradual decline where things are just a little bit worse and they're just a little bit worse and they're a little bit worse. But it's almost impossible to know when that exact tipping point is. And I'd say that is one of the major takeaways for me is when I look at the history of just like, you know, mass social unrest and uprisings. Fairly often, if you look at, at at what the people in charge were thinking and saying at the time, they almost never actually realized that they were that close. Mm -hmm. And that's just one thing that leaves just like a, just, just like a little yellow flag in my head, which is like, there might be some crazy like overthrow of our government in like next year. And everyone could be completely shocked. And that would be totally consistent with what everyone throughout history has thought. And it's really easy to sort of look backwards and be like, well, there were clearly all of these signs of like massive discontent and right. unrest and all of these things. But for some reason, like people in charge of the society just like didn't see it or maybe they didn't want to see it or maybe they weren't like perceiving the same signals, you know, then that we like can see were clearly there now. Maybe they were locked into this form of like intro elite competition so that they like couldn't actually like break themselves out of like extracting too much from like the commons there 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 has to be some reason why why people throughout history just like can't see it but the answer is virtually always they cannot see it coming yeah it's surprising cuz on one level you very often will find significant voices arguing that there's decline occurring. You know, there's a nice book called The Eternal Decline of the Roman Empire <laughs> by a historian called Edward Watts. And he basically just, yeah. you know, it goes through all these people who said, oh, Rome's declining now. It's declining now throughout its 100-year lifespan. And sometimes it was correct that it was declining. And it seems like, you know, of course you find pockets of people, often quite large pockets of people saying this throughout history. But yeah. as you say, they're often surprised that, oh, no, by declining now, we're right. And also it's happening really fast. It's almost similar towards people's <laughs> attitudes towards death, where they think, oh, they know they're going to die, mm -hmm. but they're not going to die in the next year or something like this. And there's yeah. more uncertainty, of course, with the decline issue, but it does seem to me like there's something similar going on, the sense of both a knowledge of the problem, but some amount of not wanting to stare at it directly almost. Um, yeah. It's a little bit too and psychologizing, but... Well, maybe. I think there's a useful analogy there, which is something like to the people that are currently in charge of society, if there's a radical overhaul of society, they're not in charge anymore. And throughout most of history, that also meant that you were killed. Mm -hmm. So the idea that, you know, we're sort of over psychologizing it, like, well, a civilization is made of humans. Why shouldn't we psychologize it? Right? Like, <laughs> 
for the specific people in charge throughout most of history, if you were overthrown, you were also murdered. That's literally death. That's actually just fear of death. And I don't think that that's crazy. I think they also were very cognizant of the fact that if they got overthrown, they were probably going to be murdered. So I would say that, you know, we're not like over psychologizing society. I think that's literally what's in people's heads. Yeah, yeah, that's that's right. I, I'm glad I thought of the metaphor, but in a case where it'd be more than that's quite strong. Excellent. Well, is there anything else you want to say on the history front? Yeah, I mean, I suppose to just like, to just look directly at the Rome comparison, I do think if you're going to draw that comparison to today, there is this very real question of like, which of the transitions is the current one like? Because if it's the fall of the empire, our future doesn't look good. If it's the crisis of the third century, we're going to be, you know, fine-ish, but we're, you know, going to look at like a century-long gradual decline from here. If it's the fall of the late republic, then I think there's this open question, like, do we get something much better or do we get something much worse? And it's very hard to actually know. And I think when folks try to compare us to Rome, they're actually not really very specific about kind of which period they think that we're in, right? I mean, that's a very long history. So I would just say like, it's, it is absolutely a valid comparison. And I think people just need to think about it much more carefully and to also look at what are the factors that are probably comparable and which things don't really makes sense. And I'll just throw a few quick thoughts out there. One is like the Roman economy was mostly based on like conquest and slavery. And the problem with a conquest-based empire is that you kind of have to always be militarily expanding in order to extract, you know, new things from folks who order you. And the US economy doesn't resemble that at all. And so right off the bat, I think you just have to to realize that like certain economic fundamentals are just not the same. On the flip side, I think that humans are still humans and people who live today are not that psychologically different than the people who lived 2000 years ago. Maybe a little bit, but not that much actually. And when I look at the accounts, particularly of the late Republic, it does seem a little bit eerily similar to what's going on today. So I don't think we should 100% rule out that there's actually something similar-ish at play. Mm -hmm. And yeah, just, just like a lot of the social commentary going on then just really sounds eerily familiar to, to, to what people are saying now. You know, there were lots of outcries about how we're like, losing our morality and like traditional gender roles and all kinds of these things. And, you know, there's like good and bad things there. And, you know, I don't think it's obvious that we, you know, should keep things exactly as they were 2000 years ago and like the present day, but I'm just like flagging it as like the actual like words being produced by people of that era sound shockingly like the words being produced by the people of our era right now. And I think when you're looking at it from the sort of human psychology perspective, I think that looks quite similar. And when you're looking at it from the perspective of like the concentration of wealth, like squeezing out small businesses, things like that, I again start to see lots of parallels. So I think just in summary, 
I don't think we have this like weird feature where we have to continually conquer other people to like expand our wealth. Mm -hmm. But like the social and core economic patterns that we saw do look quite similar. And I do think that the other factor that that does look similar, not just to Rome, but to every empire throughout all of history, is that we tend to get very big and we tend to start lots of wars and the wars tend to be really far from home and they tend to not really affect the core that much except financially. And a fiscal crisis has basically ended every empire pretty much ever. And that seems like a pretty close parallel, actually. It very much looks to me like the U.S. empire is greatly overextended, and we just keep pushing that a little bit more on the margin. And that, I think, is probably the greatest comparison historically that gives me like an extreme level of pause. Right, right. Yeah, just some quick reactions to that. I suppose on the morality front, that does seem like the sort of thing that many people complain about throughout the ages. So it's hard to know how predictive that is, right? You have yeah. Cato, the elder, complaining about the influence of <laughs> Greeks. And then, you know, Cato, the, the younger, will continue to complain about a variety of different influences in Rome and see his opponents as effeminate or what have you. But yeah, certainly there's some amount of breakdown around political norms that's occurred during Absolutely. the late Republic. There was something Absolutely. I've been thinking about recently is you have the a famous or well-known phenomenon is that generals had more command over their armies and people became more dependent on their generals rather than the state. True, and, it, and it does, that's something that doesn't hold up well now. Right. At least in the US. That that has held up throughout most of the world, even in the modern era. But But, but I do concur that that's less of a problem specifically in the US case. Yeah, I was, I was wondering if the breakdown of party Loyalty might be somewhat analogous. This is not something I've entirely thought, thought through yet. Well, it's tricky because, yeah, you effectively had two parties in Rome, one of which were basically the populists and one of which were like, keep the current system in place. And you're kind of seeing divisions along those lines in the U.S., though I think that this has been like very fluid since the 2016 Trump election where like the left used to be more populist and now like the right is more populist. So like we are seeing a little bit of a political realignment, but that doesn't quite feel to me like the parties themselves are collapsing. And I wouldn't really say that we saw that in Rome either. I would say if anything, we're starting to see a dividing line in the US that looks a little bit more similar to the dividing lines that happened late in Rome too. Right, right. You have a little bit more of a of a stronger culture wars, right? Is that Yes, uh, stronger feature very much too. so. Yeah. Well, another thing I want to talk to you about, moving away from the history then, is some Stoic ideas you have and you've written about and you've practiced. So the very first one is on how you've thought about this issue of the dichotomy of control or thinking about practically what is up to you and what is not. Yeah. yeah. Has made a difference? So I will say, you know, I've read a fair bit from the Stokes. And if you check my website, I did summarize summary. So I do think that if folks want like a brief introduction to some of the ideas in Stoicism, I think that's actually a pretty good starting place. And then I just want to confess that despite the fact that I have, in fact, looked into this a fair bit, I do feel like Stoics would not recognize me as living a very like Stoic life philosophy, at least 
right now. So I feel a little bit awkward sort of expounding on stoicism when I don't feel like I'm a very good stoic. Uh, I would say, though, like some of these ideas have stuck with me. And then some of them, I think I've kind of like independently come to similar conclusions. And so we end up at the same, you know, final point. But I you know, came through non means that still feels quite valuable to me. Right, right. What I have in mind is like there are some ideas you have that are really shared between yeah. you and the Stoics and it'd be useful to, to like, go through them or at least interesting. So like the first one I had, yeah. we, we had talked about a little bit is this idea of this division between what is up to you and what's not. And that's always totally. for modern Stoics, that's always an important rule. And also there's a lot to explore in terms of, well, what is actually up to you and how do you think about that? And what's your attitude towards those things that are, that are not up to you? Yeah. So I can't say why this framing has really worked for me, but I feel like it really has. And in most of my life, it served me quite well. I think that the boundary between what you can and can't control is a little bit fuzzy. So I think it's it's slightly more complicated than would appear on the surface. But in some cases, you know, actually it is quite clear and I think it has been helpful. So ways that this has shown up in my life, I guess, we've, you know, had a couple of health scares, for instance, with pets or with a family member or something like that. And that has often thrown into really sharp contrast, like when we need to make a decision about health, that could be like a life or death decision possibly. And then sort of sitting back and waiting and just like, just having to like be there with someone who is, you know, super, super sick. And it's like, well, in this moment, there's actually nothing that I can do to make them better. You know, I can sit with them, I can be with them, I can talk to them. But like, there's no like immediate medical decision that I can make that will just like solve this problem or get me more answers. You know, I, I might be waiting on the results of a blood test, you know, maybe that's going to come back in a day or maybe like several hours or something. But like, I don't really feel that like constant anxiety during that period of like, oh, I need to think about what I'm going to do, like when I get that knowledge or something. It's more like I can actually just accept that we've done everything we can possibly do in this moment. And it allows me to just like, let go of that until I need to make the next sort of like critical. So I think that 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 is one situation that I've had come up a few times that felt the most stark. Most situations in life are a little bit more ambiguous there. I would say one of the hardest blurred lines for me is like, to a certain degree, we have control over ourselves. But I think there's a little bit of a question about exactly how much control we do have, you know? There's a lot of talk about, say, the like elephant and the writer or like system one, system two. There's lots of thought about how we're actually like a non-unitary mind. So I think there, there actually is some like weird blurry area internally about how much control we actually have. So that's like one place where I've found it harder. Another place I found it harder is, you know, we do have some control over ourselves. And then, you know, we can say that we don't have control over other people and what they think and what they do. But I think the answer is that we actually have non-zero control, right? Like when we say words to another person, they're hearing those words and it's changing the internal state of their brain. So it actually does seem clear that there is also some control that's not just in ourselves, but we have some locus of control in other people. 
And it's not clear exactly how much is there. And then I think the final case for me that's like sort of fuzzy, which to just sort of like tie it back into the piece about history, which is something like if there is some really high chance of like civilizational collapse, our life in that world is going to be much, much worse. And like how much control do we actually have on a like civilizational level in order to like avoid and like save ourselves from? And like I noticed that I do have some anxiety around having to like live through like a total civilizational collapse. But even there, I would say that we do have control. Like we can stockpile things. You can stockpile food. You can like have a generator. You can get solar panels. Like there, there actually are, it turns out, all of these things you can do to sort of like harden yourself so that you can actually do better. So, you know, I would say that's one where like it seems like it's fuzzy, but we actually have a lot more control than we think. In summary, this serves me extremely well in life when it's very clear. It's harder when it's not clear. And I think it's a little less clear than stoicism would like to pretend sometimes. But like, at least in many, many cases in life, it's been really helpful for me to just like set aside that anxiety and focus on what's actually actionable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That's really useful. One Framing that we have on this, which I'm curious to hear your take on is, so reframing this stoic idea away from control and making it more about identity. So what are you as a person? Well, you are ultimately a choice-making being, and all you are responsible for are your choices and your judgments. So not thoughts that you have that may be a result of system one or intuition, but these judgments you've built over time. And that is, on the stoic line, all that really matters are your reflective judgments and your choices. And I think there's some, there's certainly some controversial philosophical ideas here around the nature of the mind, but that has been, I think, a useful way to sort of expound on this idea of control, which certainly gets very blurry. Yeah, I mean, so I guess... There could be a kind of useful fiction here, which is that we always have full control over ourselves. And in fact, that's the only thing that we do have control over. And, you know, that's maybe a kind of like mental hack for sort of gaining a little more control on the margin. I assume that you've at least sometimes in your life felt like you weren't fully in control of your actions. Is that fair or not? I'm not sure if that's true, if I've never not been in control of my decisions. Yeah, I think there's probably some, the next thing to do is like clear out what to you know, we mean when we say decision, but I don't think yeah, I have. That seems tricky. But I would also say that the one thing I deny that I think other people accept is the idea that you could be in control of a decision even if you don't feel like you are in control. So in many meditative type experiences, one can get into a state of mind where it seems as though thoughts are just occurring. And in the most extreme right. version, you might be walking and you're not even making the decision to take a next step or what have you. And I think that you know, one interpretation of this experience is you've discovered something true about the mind, which right. is that you aren't actually making decisions. Instead, there's just all this data coming in. Another interpretation, the one I favor, is that, well, when you meditate, you also don't think there are chairs because there are only <laughs> you know, these pixels, these spots of brown and so on. But that doesn't follow from that, that there aren't chairs and it's sort of a separate ontological debate over 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 that and i don't think mere mere experience is going to settle settle that debate if you will 
I mean, I think there is a consistent viewpoint, which encompasses both of these, which is that like the objective world does exist outside of yourself, but the thing that we directly experience is a simulation created by our brain, right? Like in what sense am I directly seeing this laptop in front of me versus I'm like perceiving the, you know, neural patterns in my brain that have, you know, taken in this, you know, view from outside my skull, right? I, I have eyes that have looked at this thing and it's gathered some data. And then my brain is kind of filling in all of these pieces. And, you know, I think I'm seeing a laptop and what I'm actually experiencing is the neural pattern of a laptop in my head. So you can both like be fully living in this sort of world of your mind, but the world of, of the mind, in fact, like it does for the most part, a pretty accurate job of telling you what the outside world is. Mm -hmm. So. You know, I don't think just because you do some like mindfulness meditation and then all of a sudden you're like directly interacting with the like sensory perceptions. I don't think that has to mean that it doesn't acknowledge that the outside world is like still there. But yeah, I have certainly had that experience of doing something more like noticing the thoughts that are happening. And I do think that it is a little more difficult once you recognize that and just perceived that to then you know, there is this question of like, well, what is the you then? What is the the you that feels like you have control? Is it a subset of your thoughts that you're choosing to identify with? Is it like a particular process that's doing something like directing attention, right? Which is, you know, one sort of function that's maybe happening in like the frontal cortex, but it's like a particularly useful and and helpful one. It's like a more sort of goal directed one and like we can feel that it's doing that i do think there 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 is this still very real question of like what what is this thing that we think is doing and i actually think that it's fine to identify with that process and i think that in some ways what stoicism is is it's a philosophy that says you know that thing is real and it's powerful it actually has much more control over what you're doing if you in fact let it operate. <laughs> I think other philosophies, there's more of this sort of noticing that you're not directly in control, that it is this whole ecosystem of all of these processes. And you can identify with the entire, you know, mind system, not just with that one thing. And I think you can then sort of get back to the stoic idea of full control, which is like, yeah, the entire system that is my brain decided that I was going to eat the ice cream instead of the salad. And you can just own it, right? Like you you had control over that because you, in fact, identify with the entire system and that's what the entire system wanted. So yeah, I sort of feel like you can go either direction with it and get to a place where you're still like focused on the fact that you do have control and ownership. But I think you can almost come at it from like diametrically opposite philosophies. Yeah, yeah. That's so it's almost sort of similar to where the view, or at least it, to my mind, it seems similar that to the view where there is no self and you end up identifying with things outside yeah. of yourself or the view where, no, there is a self, but it's much larger than you, than you had thought. And those plate views can end up in the same, same area where you end up identifying, either expanding your sense of self or letting it sort of collapse into 
something much larger. Either way, you are some larger thing usually yeah. in some in some metaphorical sense. Yeah, I feel like all self and no self, you know, basically converge to the same place. But I think that stoicism is actually like, no, there is a self and that is you and that self is actually in control. Yeah, which feels really, really different. Yeah, that is different. So it's you can come at it from different routes. But yes, that is a different view from the no self and all self view. So the next thing I wanted to ask you about is this idea of negative actualization as opposed to the stoic idea of negative visualization with the idea that you should premeditate on things that might go wrong in order to better plan for them or better prepare for them. So what's negative actualization? Yeah, so I guess in terms of negative visualization first, like I would say that I still very much do like plan for things in my head. I would say that like my my perception of what is happening there with stoicism isn't that you're pre-planning for the bad thing. It's that you're creating a sharp contrast to the life that you live. Yeah, I think you can do it multiple ways. One is, you know, imagine that something goes wrong and then you can prepare for it. Maybe in the, in the morning, you imagine different scenarios you could account that could arise during the day and then you can better plan for it, but also sort of psychologically prepare yourself for it. It's something that's indifferent. And what matters on the stoic view is that you act virtuously in whatever situation arise. Or you can do the view that as you mentioned, imagine that you have lost whatever you have or what you value, and then use yeah. that as a tool to appreciate what is what is around you. Yeah. And so for some reason, I feel like this has not really worked super well for me. I do find if I can sit down and like really actually just do it properly and think of, you know, how horrible life could be and then successfully contrasting it with my current life and then feeling the gratitude for the good things that I do have in life. I feel like that does kind of work. But for some reason, it's never been the mental process that I gravitate towards. And I don't feel like it's been wholly positive for me either. I do wonder if this is just a psychological difference. I think I tend to like ruminate on the bad things. And it's much harder for me to just like wholeheartedly feel the gratitude that like the bad thing isn't happening to me right now. Mm -hmm. And instead, it's almost like thinking about all of the bad things that could happen and then feeling sort of bad that they might happen. And so like, yeah, I'm curious if you have thoughts, like, is this something you think could just universally work for everyone? Do you think it's like psychologically contingent? Do you think I just need to like train my brain better? And if I focused on it and like actually did this daily that it would help like why do you think this like doesn't land as much for me i guess yeah so i would say my view is that even stoicism as a larger life philosophy at least as a practical system probably is not for everyone so even at the larger scale i think it's not a universal practical philosophy um, so like why and, not yeah. and how can you tell who it's good for oh that's a great question but well let me answer the question about negative visualization and I'll go back to yeah, sure, sure. the stoicism bit. So I think negative visualization might not work for people who are too prone to managing some worse outcome and they're not in a space where they can imagine that worse outcome and still feel safe. So I think yeah, in many of those cases, if you feel like that is you, then it will not be a useful exercise. Maybe there are kinds of almost like exposure type 
therapy techniques you can use. So you can imagine a slightly bad thing occurring and work up. And a number of people find find that useful. Yeah. More more generally, I think just for mental techniques, meditative type techniques, if you are prone to rumination, like many people are, I think that you just need to do some amount of search and really cut out any of those that you find are leading yourself to more rumination. I think that's probably just my initial first first stab. And if you find that negative visualization is that for you, at least initially, then that seems like sufficient reason to try try something else. Yeah. yeah. I think if I compare it to something like insight meditation, it's it's really not clear to me that it's actually had a net positive effect on my life because I feel like it taught me to perceive a lot more like subtle shades of suffering that I realized were there. And then all of a sudden now I've like developed the muscle to notice certain kinds of suffering. <laughs> And there's a mental state that I can get to, or if I really like focus on that, I can just perceive it as something negative without actually fighting it. And I find that I can make the suffering sort of go away, even when something bad is happening. But it takes a lot of focus and concentration to get into that mental state. And so I feel like by default, when my brain is focused on something else, I've just learned to like, see the bad stuff more clearly. And then it takes active effort to then not see the bad stuff as bad or something. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just a little bit worried about those kinds of techniques having more blowback than people think. And we mostly hear from the people who like do a lot of meditating, right? And like it works really well for them in part because they're doing it so much and in part because maybe like their brain works better that way. But for someone who's like kind of busy and kind of, of like anxious about like various life things, I'm kind of like, is this really the best technique for people or something? Yeah, I think the answer in some cases is is probably not, and there might be other other useful useful things to practice. I mean, there's always the principle of you know equal and opposite advice, and for some people, uh, uh, yeah, so if, yeah. You, if you want to use other philosophy, for some people, reading Ayn Rand's very useful because they're exceptionally maybe passive or they don't have this idea that actually you can stand up right. for. <laughs> your needs, but for other people, maybe they're too far in the spectrum and they don't need a philosophy to justify their, their bullying of others or what have you. Um, yeah, it's true. It's true. Yeah, I think what's hard then is like the actual right advice to give people is very context dependent. And this is one of the reasons that I just am a lot more hesitant to give blanket advice to people than I used to. I did have some clients many years back. And when I did life coaching type-ish stuff, I did find I could actually get to know someone's context pretty well. And I could usually make pretty helpful suggestions. But like when you're talking to someone that's a proponent of a particular philosophy, they're basically only interacting with the people who've been really successful by using that philosophy. And so there's a ton of people out there being like, stoicism's great. You should like meditate one hour per day. And you're only ever hearing from like the, you know, survivorship group. And it does seem to me like there would be something useful in the space that I haven't seen really, which is something like trying to uh, sort of codify a little bit more precisely what are the types of people and circumstances and contexts that certain advice works better for than others. Mm -hmm. I think there are like, you get this a little with like the personality typing 
thing where they're trying to sort of create some kind of system for like you are a you know x kind of person in general but really making that more rigorous and then wetting it to the best of the like activity self-help kind of advice i feel like i i haven't seen a great job of that and it feels like that would actually be something really really valuable yeah that's a good idea i have thought about writing a piece before on you know these are the 10 features that make stoicism not the right life philosophy for you it sounds very i would love a, to read that <laughs> a little bit too of a catchy title or marketing but i think if it's an honest piece that it would, it would be very useful and i haven't haven't thought of those 10 things yet but i think well it sounds like you need someone who's not a stoic to write it then yeah maybe so maybe so i do think that in modern stoicism now we are seeing pockets of different kinds of stoicism for example there's there's a woman named Brittany polat who works on stoicism related to parenting that's more focused on Stoic advice for caregivers. And I th one sin of right. some Stoics has been that it's been too of an individualistic philosophy, too, people would say, cold. And there is a caricatured attack of that on Stoicism. That caricature gets lots of things yeah, wrong. But it is true I don't that. Think is, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But it is true that there's something to that for some people. And what people like Brittany are doing, I think, is helping provide resources for people who might sort of slide into that and but they're still really attracted to stoicism and i think that's sort of the direction i'd, I'd want to push as i hope we see more things mm. like this that sort of that address what you might think of you know every life philosophy has its different sins and often they're, they're, they come from but not always there's some truth to the criticism that people people who don't hold those views will will have and i hope those are, are continue to, to be addressed yeah i do find it fascinating i no, honestly, to nothing about modern stoicism. So, like, hearing that there are these like schools of thought sort of like spinning out from that is like super, super cool. Yeah. I think related for Western Buddhists, there are now people doing more work into, and you are probably familiar with this, but it's people who have done more work looking into the harms of meditation or particular people who reacted really poorly to meditative practice which is a real phenomenon and communities being, being built up built up for that which i think is a, a very good thing at least that people are doing more research into it and that more people know that it's not a 100 percent safe exercise yeah and i think that's important also i would just say as like a parent i am also starting to see more people at least warning like hey once you set foot down this path it can be really intense and really time consuming and like you know maybe if you have other people who are like depending on you always being there like maybe this is not a good point in your life to try to go down that path excellent well we got a bit distracted so negative visualization you may not find to be as useful but you mentioned that negative actualization is something that has played more of a role in your life so I've mentioned that I have this issue with not really being able to do negative visualization, at least consistently or, or properly. But that said, life gives us plenty of opportunities where things actually go wrong, where things are, are actually bad and hard. <laughs> and uh, I think probably the way in which I'm kind of the most stoic, actually, is that for me, having had those sort of bad experiences in life does make me actually appreciate all the good stuff more 
in a way that I can't from just doing the negative visualization. I kind of actually need the bad thing to happen to, to really get the bulk of the effect, I would say. Yeah, it's sort of this idea of, look, I've persisted through this event in the past before. If I did that, then I can, then I can persist in whatever else comes my way, maybe, is part of well, it. Well, I think it isn't just that I, that I know that I'm capable of surviving something bad, but actually just the like direct contrast. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like I think a very a trivial example is something like I go on a long trip and I'm you know not home for like a week and it's exhausting and it's hard and I don't have all of my stuff. That moment when I get home and for like days afterwards, I'm just like so glad that I'm home. I'm so glad that I have like my own bed. I have all of my stuff. I don't have to like carry everything on me. I like there, there's all of these ways in which home is just like better than travel. And I can sort of abstractly think about that when I've been at home for like a month. But it's really not the same as actually just going and traveling and then coming back. And for me, this is actually one of the main things that I get out of, you know, every year going and doing Burning Man. Like a a huge part of that experience for me is just the fact that it's so unpleasant that I'm extremely glad to come home every single time, (laughs) which I don't think that I've, I've heard that from almost anybody who goes, but like it, 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 it is a real honest to God reset of like, comfortable temperature, comfortable sleeping arrangements, like getting hot food when I want, getting cold food when I want, right? Like there, there are so many ways which it just like strips me of all of those comforts that I take for granted. And just having that, you know, one week every year where I'm like maximally uncomfortable does make things just so much better <laughs> for so long. Yeah, this relates to the practice of voluntary discomforts as well. Yeah, I think that the idea behind hormesis actually just goes beyond the voluntary discomfort, Mm -hmm. but actually goes into like applying real stress to your body. So just as a brief history, the way that this hormesis phenomenon was, was, uh, was found is really early on when people were looking at the effect of exposure to harmful radiation, it was noticed that there was this dose effect response where if you actually got exposed to a little radiation, you were healthier. And then if you got exposed to a lot, you were dead. So obviously there was a turning point where, where something, you know, went from a stress that produces a like adaptive response in the body to just like damn. And so this term hormesis was coined to, to, to sort of like point this unusual kind of inverse U curve where a little bit of stress actually produces something healthier. And what I've basically come to think is this is a very general feature of pretty much all complex systems. The way to think of a complex system isn't that it's in some like static equilibrium that you're trying not to be disturbed. It's actually a a highly dynamic system. And in fact, the system is the healthiest when it experiences the widest possible range of extremes on every dimension you can think of. And I basically think that this applies, you know, both to like our brains and our bodies, as well as like human civilizations. And where the voluntary discomfort part comes in is this question of like, well, what do you do when there's no outside stressor? 
and I think there, there sort of is, is this real question of like, can you develop a practice where you're willing to endure the voluntary, like, you know, pain or suffering in order to produce some effect that will make you happier and stronger later. And I think that's something that's very not easy to do, but to me feels like it fits very much within the kind of like stoic philosophy, as well as other ancient Greek philosophies too. You know, they, they also had ideas about sort of enlightened hedonism where you're actually not just doing sort of like the blindly most pleasurable thing in every moment, right? You, you want to maximize the area under the curve. <laughs> right. And basically, I am quite convinced at this point, if you want to be a maximally vibrant biological organism, you have to be put under different kinds of stress. And what I'm not talking about is like the chronic stress that we, you know, feel so often. That I'm actually convinced is pretty much just destructive. What I'm talking about is sharp, extreme, short periods of stress. And that can come via life circumstances, you know, as, as I've said, I've had pets and I've had family members who are super sick and there really is a way in which that was horrible at the time and also made me much more grateful and happy when they turned out fine, which obviously they sometimes did when they did. Right? But like the idea that then you can sort of voluntarily add stress to yourself, I think is actually one of those skills that does serve people really well in life. And one pretty clear example of this that I think a lot of people get behind is voluntarily exercising. And yeah, some people are like, you can like get a runner's high and like it does actually feel good when you're doing it. But for a large fraction of people, it doesn't feel good when you're actually doing it. It feels good after. And, and I feel like that is kind of probably the most common one that people would identify with. I think it goes way beyond that. It goes to fasting, which I talk about a lot, you know, like voluntarily abstaining from for a long time. It goes to hot exposure. It goes to cold exposure, right? There, there are all of these different ways in which our body is, is well designed to, to cope with and respond to specific kinds of stress that we don't have a natural way to expose ourselves to by default. It's something that we have to make into a deliberate practice. And I think that that is just what you need in order to live the most vibrant life for the longest possible. Yeah. What do you do? You have any thoughts on which practices you might advise different people to check out, depending on their physical or personal profile? I mean, that's a tricky one, in part because a lot of people are kind of unhealthy, and if I'm like, well, everyone should do high intense training. Like, maybe that's actually not good for someone who has like a mm -hmm. heart problem that I don't know about, right? So. I think to some degree, you know, people have to have to know themselves. I do think especially with fasting, way more people treat themselves as fragile than I would have sort of naively thought. That does seem to be one where like most people, if they haven't thought about it and tried it, are, are extremely wary to go without food, even for like one day, which, you know, I, I would consider to be a fairly short fast. People are shockingly unwilling to try it. Yeah, maybe given that people are more willing to voluntarily exercise, I guess I would say one place the average person could start is try doing max effort exercise, not even for long. Like if you're on a bike, try to bike literally as hard as, as you possibly can just for like 20 seconds and then rest and do that, you know, six to eight times. Like I think 
just doing that alone, people will start to notice like for a few days after, like they're just a little more energetic than they would have been. Something like that, which again, there's always caveats. If you have like chronic fatigue syndrome, that's actually probably counterproductive. But like other than narrow for for most people, like it's going to be really unpleasant when they do it because they're forcing their body to work harder than it naturally wants to work and and like what they're used to. But like, I think most people will start to see that like it does pay dividends later. Yep. Well, what, another topic I wanted to talk to you about is COVID, of course. So you built up a following for incisive and prescient COVID commentary on Twitter. And I think it's always, I've been talking to a number of people who have met that profile or met, been good at predicting crypto because I think it's always good to talk to people who have some amount of a positive track record. A in, history of yeah. being right. Yes. Yeah. A history of being right. That is always, that's always true. And you don't get so many of these tests where you get good feedback, I think, like you do in the COVID case where there's a single big thing and you can see tests of people being right. Perhaps there's some analogies in finance, but it was interesting to see this, this big happening and rank people who you thought were good at forecasting or good commentators over time and see how they performed. So who performed well, well in the beginning? Yeah, maybe this is a little bit self-serving, but I would the like rationality and effective altruism groups tended to actually get it right pretty early and were pretty driven by the actual data pretty early and good at, you know, understanding the priors about what pandemics are like and how they unfold, I'd say for the most part. I think that one of the groups that have gotten a lot of the stuff right are people who've been like studying security and there are in fact folks who spend much of their time thinking about like what would happen during a pandemic and i would say the core people there were actually quite good and i would separate the like public health group of folks from that i really mean the people that are like thinking about pandemics most of their time the public health authorities i think did absolute absolutely terribly so i just want to kind of like separate those two but yeah in short I would summarize it by the people that were willing to be pretty driven by the data and rapidly updating and people who'd done a lot of thinking about this in advance tended to actually get it pretty right for most of. Right, right. Yeah, I, I had the fortune of living in a rationalist house in 2020. Nice. So around you know February, everyone is excited about it. And you would have the experience of walking around the streets and thinking, oh, these are going to be closed soon, most likely. And yeah, I don't, I don't think I've experienced a similar thing in my life, actually, where I've been so convinced about something empirical and that I thought so many people were missing at once. Can you think yeah, of- That's true. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned, you mentioned crypto. I think that's another one where the skeptics have mostly turned out wrong. And the people who really deeply believed have turned out. So I think that was a good, you know, thing that you flagged too. There's not that many though. I mean, we can go back to the financial crisis and mm -hmm. it's tough because there's a group of people that's always calling for a bubble. And it just so happened that there was a bubble. <laughs> but like when you look at the actual people that had money on the line at the right time, at the right place group was so small like michael lewis wrote a book highlighting half a dozen of of those people and that was like most of them right i would say that was like a decent test case that almost everyone got wrong now mind you that was like way before most of the kind of 
rationalist community had even like coalesced into a community. But like that, I feel like was kind of one of the last really big moments where kind of everyone collectively realized that almost everyone was wrong. And like, who got that right? Very few people. And then a couple people that are like basically perma bears who have been proven wrong ever since then. So, you know, I would fly that. I would say another one is the rise of artificial intelligence and machine learning. That was one that a small group of people called really early that it was going to be a huge deal. And it has absolutely turned out to be a huge deal. And, you know, once more, this is also sort of self-serving, but like I've been in the kind of like AI safety community for quite some time. And it was widely believed that like there were going to be some really big steps forward coming and that, you know, folks really did kind of like suddenly wake up. It was right around the 2015, 2016 sort of time frame is when it became obvious to the mainstream that AI was going to be huge. And the developments that we've seen since then, you know, I think have sort of really correctly, maybe now we're kind of overstating the case, but at least then I think got most folks on board with like, AI is going to be a big deal and it's going to be way more impressive and powerful than we thought it would be. Mm -hmm. So yeah, crypto, AI, COVID are all things that have happened in the last, you know, 10-ish years that I think a small group really thought through and got right. I don't know if I can think of another example. There were obviously people sort of calling the Trump phenomenon pretty early before that got big, but that was like a, a much larger group. And, you know, once more, kind of lots of them were for like ideological reasons. So I don't know how much credit to give that. What else? I guess like a smaller example recently is there was a huge online argument going on about whether Russia would actually invade Ukraine. Right. And that's one that a lot of people were loudly saying there's no way. And, you know, a smaller group was saying, you know, guys, all the evidence points to this happening. And, you know, I would say that was a win for the like open source intelligence community. They basically got this one completely right. Most of like the pundits got this one absolutely wrong. And I do, you know, always hesitate to give, you know, too much credit to, you know, the mainstream establishment, but like the mainstream intelligence community was saying like, no guys, like Russia's going to go in now. And they got a lot of crap right up until February 24th. And then all of a sudden, yeah, it was, it was very clear who was right and who was wrong. Uh, those are a few big trends and one, you know, very precise, you know, one from this last year. Other than that, I, I'm, I'm having a hard time coming up with more. Yeah, yeah. The, the Russia-Ukraine is a good example because it's also one where you get to see people's predictions play out over different issues. You know, of course, will there be an invasion? How long will the invasion last? And it's always interesting to see a model of the world that predicts there's going to be invasion and the war will be very fast. It so is that is the other thing is most people who are following this thought that the war would be fast. Mm -hmm. And that's an interesting case where, yeah, when the, when the first invasion started and there were some really rapid gains right at first, almost everyone thought that Ukraine was a to fall. And that was one where it turned out almost everyone was wrong. 
very few people were like, no, they've got this, they're going to hold them. And we're going to be having this conversation a year later. Very few people. I was in some private chat groups and the number I gave for a like vigorous defense of the country was something like 20%, which obviously turned out to be far too low, but that was mm -hmm. way higher than what everyone else was saying. <laughs> like no one thought there was any chance. And, and, and I was like, guys, there like might be a chance actually. And, and it turned out that I was more right and still very wrong, very, very wrong. So yeah, that was a, a super fascinating case where like a small group was actually proven super right right at the start and then almost all of them were also proven wrong <laughs> right <laughs> but to just you know tie this back in if you look at the history of wars almost everyone and like thinks they are going to happen faster than they do and i think we have actually just been a little bit too focused on like the recent wars that the u.s has been involved in where basically we just come in and absolutely steamroll somebody i think we we've, we've sort of gotten into the mindset that that's what a like modern war looks like and I think we forgot that, like, no, actually, wars almost always take years to play out. Almost always. So, you know, maybe I should have studied a little more history and given higher odds than 20%. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Maybe so. So you're going back to COVID, although we can explore these other, other topics as well. What are you think are some sure. reasonable heuristics people use that didn't work in the, in the COVID case? Yeah, a couple of big ones come to mind. One of which think actually works most of the time it's pretty just that like nothing really happens which isn't to say that we're in the like end of history but for like every story that you read about insane trend or this new thing coming out or something happening in like some country almost always that's kind of like overplayed and it's pretty reasonable to just assume that like nothing ever happens is, is like a pretty reasonable first pass and so I basically think when you do see a developing story like this, it's it's really important to then dig down into the actual details and figure out, does this thing have the actual causal structure of like a world changing event or can we kind of not really tell? And it's, it's kind of ambiguous. Maybe this trend will matter. It's not clear. I do think we, we've had a little bit more of run the last couple of years of like, no, things actually do happen. COVID, we had war, right? Things which were not on most people's radar. But like, I do think that it's hard, even with a potential pandemic, lots of like random weird tropical viruses crop up and they infect a couple people or a couple dozen people or even a couple hundred people and they like always fizzle out. And so, you know, when you get a case like this, it's like, well, what are sort of broad reference class for this? And I think one of the early mistakes I made was, well, maybe it's going to be more like SARS-1. And SARS-1 did spread a fair bit, but not that much, right? It got to like thousands, not hundreds. It was pretty easily stopped, mostly just because you tended to start getting a fever before you really started being super infectious. And it actually wasn't infectious. It was pretty infectious, but it wasn't that infectious. And so the combination of, of being able to just do a symptomatic check for it, plus the consequences of like failing that, you know, relatively minor, basically meant SARS-1 was actually stoppable. And I think I, you know, I had to point to like an early mistake that I made. I actually thought the combinations of like lockdowns, travel bans, contacts, tracing, 
massively ramping up uh, some testing would have been enough to potentially stop this virus. And when I look at what China did, they actually did basically get cases down to zero. And I think that was true. I don't think that, you know, they were just hiding some like massive amount of COVID in their country for like years. I think basically China beat it. But then when the rest of the world continued to make more infectious variants of it, then, you know, I think, you know, it was only a matter of time for all of us. But like I did actually think if those first few countries had like taken it really seriously at the very start, I actually think wasn't inevitable that COVID had to spread. But I think if I critique myself, I would say that it should have been more obvious more quickly that it was like there was no way we would actually manage to contain this thing. And so I think I was too kind of hopeful at first. And some of that, again, was because I actually studied SARS-1 and I looked at how we stopped it. And even though, you know, it was this like airborne, somewhat infectious virus, we still stopped it. It made me, I think, overly optimistic for it. So I think you, you know, always want to be mindful of what is the proper reference class of things and events. And I think that there are better and worse ways to do that. And I think it was actually pretty reasonable to just say like most pandemics fade out, including SARS-like ones. And I think we sort of didn't, you know, update sufficiently much of like, well, there's four seasonal coronaviruses that are like worldwide and infect everyone every year. Maybe COVID's more like those than it is like SARS. Oh, yeah. The other reasonable heuristic, I think, that didn't really hold up very well, which feels pretty reminiscent of everything going on over the last several years, is that trusting authority figures did not work very well. And this is a really tough one for me because I am just kind of by nature, like pretty contrarian, pretty skeptical, like pretty like anti-establishment in general. And, you know, I feel like there are pretty good reasons for that. And uh, I think at least for like myself personally, I think that's good because I'm willing to actually put in the time and effort to figure out what the hell's actually going on. But I don't think that's actually a scalable solution for the vast majority of like the population. Like we're all busy. We have lives, like jobs, kids, so on. Most people can't just figure everything out for themselves all the time. And so one of the sort of like heuristics that we all rely on at least to some degree is like trusting people and unfortunately i would say that the public health community and like people in the government trying to like do you know pandemic communication i think fared extremely poorly not to put too fine a point on it and so i think the like normally reasonable heuristic of like we'll trust the authorities actually failed really badly here yeah yeah well don't you think the authorities were trustable it's just that you could they are running six months to two years late but then they're not really trustable are they like, i think that there are like honest mistakes and the problem is the very early mistakes were political in nature not because mm-hmm. they didn't really understand what was going on i think that's like the first thing i would flag the second thing i would flag is once they were actually proven to be wrong the way that you maintain trust is you really rapidly just admit that like their understanding of the situation had changed, and then they need to update what they're suggesting. And the fact that they tried so hard to defend, you know, what was state of the art six months ago to two years ago, that's actually a failing. That's not just that they were 
like behind is that they were trying to cover for themselves mm-hmm. and like can't do that. Like the point of public health is to get information to people that they can use as best as they possibly can. And if you're deliberately lying to people, either to cover your ass or for like some political reason, because there's something they want to protect or because they're trying to nudge you into behavior, like telling people that masks don't work because they're trying to preserve masks for like healthcare workers, rather than actually saying masks do work, we're going to scale up as much as we can. Please give healthcare workers what you can right now, right? Like those, those like three things are all lies. They are fundamentally lies and, and they're fundamentally not actually serving the people that they're supposed to be helping and protecting. Right. So, but I guess like there's always this question that, that you mentioned earlier of how do you make this a uh, more scalable, how do you have a more scalable solution? Because of course, authorities, not so good, but compared to what? And if you yeah. look at many of the other options that people go to for their news about the pandemic, they're, I would submit that many of them are uh, not great. are terrible. Well, right. It's possible that we live in the extremely unfortunate world in which literally no one is actually trustworthy. It's not like there's some law of nature that there has to be one source that everyone can just go to to get good info. Unfortunately, I would say, given that we have such a loss of trust in public institutions, we're kind of in a like epistemically Darwinian world where unfortunately, like, even though the fact that almost everyone should probably be outsourcing trust to something, we actually sort of can't. And so I think a lot more people are trying to figure out what's real than they were before, which means that a lot of them are going to be wrong. And I just think that like, just because a lot of people are going to be wrong a lot of the time isn't sufficient to justify things like, you know, censorship or things like that. Because I think that that's actually a losing battle that is currently making the problem worse. So I think there's like the two-pronged thing going on here. One is, if, you know, I were magically in control of all the public health institutions, the number one thing that I would focus on is just regaining trust and nothing else. I wouldn't be trying to nudge people, nothing like that. The only thing that I'd be doing right now is be trying to have a full and honest accounting of what happened at each step and why they did it with a credible commitment that that's not going to happen in the future. You know, I think that means fact-finding. It means putting out reports. It does mean some people that were in charge losing their jobs. I think there's a level of like public accountability that needs to happen that is going to be the first step to actually creating something that people can trust in the future. I'm not expecting anyone to trust those things right now, but I think we should be taking steps to rebuild that trust because we're going to need it, right? We needed it once and we didn't have it and we lost more of it, right? So we, we have to be getting back on the path of regaining that. In the meantime, unfortunately, I think that we're in this world where most people don't know what's actually true. And there are various voices that are going out there. And some of them are, you know, just right lying. Some of them are kind of doing their best, but they're like already kind of cognitively compromised. I think that's where most people are. And then some people are actually genuinely trying to find out the truth in a relatively open and like honest manner. And I basically think that over time, the people that are right more than they're wrong 
will get more people to actually hear what they're saying. And despite the fact that the public health institutions were lying all over the place, in actual fact, the majority of people tended to come to the right conclusions in the end. And maybe that process could have happened, you know, months sooner. And, you know, maybe we got, you know, could have gotten more than like 70 or, or like 80% of folks kind of like roughly right. You know, it's, it's sad that we're losing this tale of like 20 to 30% of folks or something. I'm just like mm-hmm. throwing out some numbers, but like at the end of the day, I think that's kind of the best we can do. I think as long as we don't have trustworthy institutions, we have no choice but to rely on this highly distributed process and basically accept that not everyone's going to come to the right conclusions. We can't force them to, nor should we. And and I think that's just how it is. And I know that we want everyone to be right. And I but like the the only system that we have for doing that right now is basically just conformity to some set view. And if there's no trust in a system that can come to the right answer, we need to actually be more hands-off. We we need to in fact let go. We 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 have to stop this like death grip on on convincing people about like the truth because the honest answer is we don't know. Mm-hmm. And we don't have anyone we can trust. So we have to rebuild it and we have to see who has a track record of being right and let people, you know, flock to the voices that are actually working. Yeah. Do you have any advice or general thoughts on as an individual thinking about how to choose people to outsource your judgments to? Since of course many people won't be for many issues won't be able to look into the finer details. Uh, yeah, that one is super hard. Unfortunately, I think that the heuristics that I use and that I would suggest are not really ones that can be easily applied by most people to most circumstances, which makes it a really hard problem. For me personally, one of the main things that I look for is something like epistemic humility. And I think this comes in a bunch of different forms. One thing is I will trust people a lot more if they're willing to ever admit that they were wrong. And if you actually go through and look, it's a shockingly tiny fraction of folks that are expounding on all of this stuff that will ever admit that they were wrong about anything. Even just being willing to come forward and say, like, this is what I thought and why I thought it at the time and why I've updated and that I think that view was wrong. And I'm sorry that I said that. That is huge. You've already ruled out almost every thinker right there. But like to me, what's really important is that seeing someone is willing to update on new evidence. I'm actually okay with someone putting something out there and being wrong, not okay with them being proven wrong and then not owning it. I I need to know if I'm going to outsource some trust that I can trust them to also tell me when I shouldn't have had that trust, right? That that's so, so, so key. Another thing that I look for would be something like good faith arguments. One thing that's really important to me is can someone state the strongest version of the view that they don't think is true? So if you're able to construct a steel man rather than a straw man of kind of like the other side, I'm much more willing to trust that you've thought about this and that your brain hasn't already flipped off. Because most of the time, arguments are soldiers, right? You are putting these things out there in order to try to beat the enemy. And as soon as I see that mindset, I'm like, no. This person maybe can like dredge up some like 
interesting facts that I can use trying to construct it myself for like one side, but I can never fully trust that. I can never fully outsource it if they're only presenting good arguments from one side. It's extremely rare that there's never a good argument for something else. Like that, that really just doesn't happen. Like life is too confusing and it's too complicated. There's always good arguments. And so if someone can't construct those, huge red flag. Other heuristics of mine are more involved and harder. One thing that I like to do when I'm trying to learn about a new field is I'll basically get a big download from like one thinker and then I'll try to find someone on the other side and I'll basically just try to raise all of those same points I just heard. And this is basically something like an epistemic arbitrage I'm doing where they can't really necessarily have the conversation directly with like, the enemy. But as someone who's mm -hmm. like relatively uninformed on a field, I can come in and just like ask dumb questions. And I actually find this a really helpful way to learn a lot about a new field very quickly. Now, mind you, this is very time consuming and very hard, which is why I'm saying I don't think this is a heuristic that can actually scale. I don't think it's someone like something that most folks can do. You can kind of do a version of it by like looking at people responding to other people, which which then sort of looks more like those first heuristics I laid out where, yeah, you're like seeing one side of it, but but you can sort of tell whether one side of it's actually being like kind of reasonable and like sort of thinking. But for someone who does have the time and just inclination to actually learn the answer, I think doing that arbitrage between two different viewpoints, you can learn a lot very quickly. And I think you can also start to get a sense of like, is one of the sides responding with sort of well-reasoned and thought-out arguments, or are they only responding with soldiers, right? And at that point, I can start to see who I can trust on which sides more, right? Even if someone is like technically on one side, but I can tell that they're genuinely responding to arguments and they've thought about it and they're not just trying to shoot them down with some sort of like casual dismissal. For me, that's that's just a much, much better sign that I can trust that person more in the future. Right, right. Yeah, it is it is always disappointing how few people will state what they think of as the opposition's best argument in in a good faith. I think that, that's an unfortunate fact, but perhaps not so surprising. Um, not surprising and very unfortunate, you know, but at least it makes it easier to spot people who are actually thinking. That's right. Do you think this whole experience made you more pessimistic or optimistic about the state of things in the U.S.? Uh, much more pessimistic. Yeah. I would say on a couple different levels. One of them is I actually do still genuinely believe that if we had a more unified and competent and speedy like way to handle this from the very start, COVID didn't have to turn into a worldwide pandemic. And clearly, I was wrong about how likely it was we could actually do that. Almost every arm of what needed to happen, like, immediately fell apart. Like, you very, very strict lockdown, even self-imposed, where folks really just genuinely stayed in their house for, like, two weeks straight. Like, there wouldn't be much spread, you know? Or if we had extremely widespread testing, everyone could get tested every single day, which is not like it's completely, like, infeasible. We would have caught every single case. If we had had a like vaccine that was developed and deployed, you know, both like much, much sooner and like simultaneously everywhere, like maybe that would have actually stopped it rather than like a slow 
rollout for like old variants that aren't even circulating, right? Like it, in so many different ways, like one piece of it done extremely well, like at least had a chance of stopping it. But, but we just failed on every dimension. We failed on testing, failed on contact tracing. We failed on like actually isolating from people. Like we didn't do any travel bans when it was really early and, and could have actually helped. There's just so many ways in which we just screwed everything up. And it's like particularly disheartening too, because it's not like this was some like completely out of the blue thing that humanity had never faced or thought about. People have been doing pandemic preparedness for a while. And the fact that like all of these existing systems that we had basically fell down should, should be a major negative update of like, no, we're not actually as competent at this. Mm -hmm. I think the sort of like most optimistic spin that I can take on this is something like we ended up with almost like a worst case for how severe it was because if it killed like two orders of magnitude less people, we wouldn't have even cared. We would have just had another common cold virus. And, you know, maybe someone in a lab somewhere might be like, oh, there's like a new seasonal coronavirus. Whereas if it killed like in order of magnitude more people, I think everyone would have been so scared of this, we would have actually pulled out all of the stops and stopped the virus. <laughs> and instead, we almost wound up in this like perfect place where like there was a reasonable disagreement about how bad this would be for society. So that you couldn't just say that, that the people who are like pull out all of the stops were like totally crazy. And you also couldn't say the people that were like, we should just ignore this thing were like totally right. crazy. We ended up in this in this middle zone where like it it allowed it to turn into something highly political. And it was just so weird because for the first, I'd say six weeks or so, it really felt like everyone was kind of in this together and we all realized that it was like very serious. And Pretty unfortunate because, because I think that like to some degree we got there because people were actually more scared than was warranted. And from my perspective, you know, from like the very early case studies we had on like the cruise ships, like that gave us an extremely good set of data because 100% of those people were tested. And so we know exactly how infectious the virus was and exactly what fraction of folks it killed. And that estimate from almost the very start of the pandemic held up totally fine. You know, in those early cases, the IFR was like about one. And then once we got like better methods of treating it, we didn't like immediately rush people onto a ventilator, things like that, you know, then we got the IFR down to like half a percent. Now I see that and I'm like, for a virus that's going to kill 1% of the world population, if we just let this thing go, it's worth taking steps to like try to stop it if we could stop it quickly. Is it worth taking steps for multiple years? Well, that's much less clear. But I think it was worth a try at first based on just like a 1% rate. But a lot of people were just like scared into thinking that it actually was much more serious. Like, and if it were like an order of magnitude more serious, they were kind of right to be scared, right? But like, mm -hmm. I think we sort of got caught in this weird thing where like people actually got too afraid. And then once they actually sort of updated on the fact that the virus was less serious than they thought it was, then they were suddenly like, okay, well, all of the stuff that we're doing is like way too crazy, way too out there. And that process took, you know, less than two months. And I think that's actually pretty reasonable because I think we had pretty good data pretty early about exactly how bad it would be. And it just took a little bit of time for that to like filter out. And that was kind of the point where it became highly political and people just never looked back. And it's just been a 
terrible thing ever since. <laughs> True. Yeah, I would say I did not update fast enough in the direction of how bad it would be and thought that it was worse than it in fact was for several months longer than I should have. So I will say, right, right. But, but like months longer is very different than like two years longer. But yeah, in my own case, actually, I do think that I did overstate the severity of the infection for the people who didn't die. And I basically got the right infection fatality rate, but I did actually overestimate the hospitalization rate. So I did think hospital overruns were actually much more likely than I thought. And I thought the, that a shortage, not just of like hospital beds, but also specifically a shortage of ICUs and a shortage of ventilators, I actually thought was going to probably be much more severe than it actually turned out being. So like, I also did overestimate the severity in certain ways. And mm-hmm. I do think that, you know, that, that for me was actually a pretty significant update of like, okay, hospital overruns actually are less of a concern than I feared. So at that point, the need for things like lockdowns to slow the spread more than people are sort of naturally taking precautions, I think was actually probably overdone from the start. But like, I don't think that was obvious for like a couple of months. Right, right. Yeah. Yep. That seems right to me. I would say on the optimistic side, I did not expect the vaccine to be developed so fast and that that is yeah. one so I am you know, with you on that, that things can happen. I didn't think things like yes. that could happen. Right. So I was overly optimistic about everything else and overly pessimistic about developing one vaccine. <laughs> I was like, hey, that, that was literally the one thing where I was like, we're going to be in this state for years while, while they're still working on it, they're tinkering on it. I basically did correctly predict that the FDA was going to speed the vaccine through much more quickly. It obviously could have sped it through even more quickly. Though, in retrospect, a lot of people are now really complaining that they think the vaccine is actually less safe than they thought and less efficacious. So it's not even clear to me that that actually the like average person on the street is happy about how long the vaccine took. But if we put that aside, yeah, there obviously are a couple things that could have sped the process quite a bit more. Like you could have done challenge trials. Like certainly we could have gotten out faster than like a year-ish, but like a year was so much faster than even I thought would happen trying to like rush things through. A major piece of this is that the vaccine actually happened to work on the first try. And I think I, again, sort of overly updated on the SARS-1 case where vaccine development turned out to be extremely challenging. And folks were basically working on vaccines for years after we'd actually cured SARS because people were, you know, rightfully worried that SARS might come back. SARS leaked from a lab multiple times. We had multiple SARS-1 outbreaks because of lab leaks. So like having a SARS-1 vaccine actually isn't crazy. And folks tried for years and they never got it to work. And so I think I was actually a little bit too pessimistic on the underlying biology being possible to make one. And I was probably a little too, yeah, I think I didn't sufficiently update that like a lot of the work that folks had put into the SARS-1 vaccine was actually repurposable. There is actually lots of stuff that we learned, right? Like we learned that you need to like make antibodies for the like binding domain on the S protein. That turned out to be really important for SARS-1. And that allowed us to make a SARS-2 vaccine on the first try. Whereas if we didn't really know that necessarily, we could have ended up with a vaccine that was like making infections more severe rather than less severe, which we saw with SARS-1. So I think I did probably underestimate the degree to which we actually accumulated useful biological knowledge 
that in fact made it easier to make the vaccine. I also was a little less optimistic on mRNA as well because I'd been watching Moderna for years and like they did have like a couple vaccines in there. They had like really overpromised on the technology for so long and mm -hmm. they really seemed like a pretty like overvalued company, frankly, that I was genuinely surprised that mRNA worked as well as it did. The fact that like, you know, the viral vector vaccines worked, you know, those, those also are like relatively new and kind of grand scheme of things, but are, are basically working on pretty well-known biological principles. So I was pretty sure those would work, but yeah, I would say, I would say, yeah, I both was too pessimistic about the FDA, though ultimately I think I was correct that they would try to speed things. And, and I was more too pessimistic about what we've learned on the underlying biology and our skill in developing a good vaccine quickly. That I was very, very wrong about. Got it, got it. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you have a view on the lab leak idea at this point? Yeah, my personal feeling is it's probably more likely than not. It's it's really hard to get good data on this because there are a lot of folks, both in the US and in China, that are trying to not give us what we need to know. But like, I think it's it's honestly pretty hard to look at the totality of evidence, both from, from this lab leak, but also the history of lab leaks and not think that it's at least more likely than not. Am I certain? No, I'm definitely not certain. And, and I think anyone who says that they're certain either way is just absolutely crazy. Those are soldiers. Those are not like valid arguments, but, uh, but yeah, like if you put a gun to my head, I would go lab leak over not. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Yeah. That makes sense. So switching gears to last topic, what's your view on role models? So at Stoa, there's we have an exercise called Contemplation of the Sage, which involves imagining a role model, the advice they give you, or imagining what they would do in your place. And it's a very common Stoic exercise, an exercise for a number of other traditions as well. So I'm curious what you think about, about role models generally. Yeah, so role models actually haven't played a very large role in my life. And uh, I don't know if this is just kind of a unique quirk of my psychology or my situation or something, or like whether maybe I've like hit on something about why role models don't make that much sense. But I've had a couple different experiences in life where I actually have had something more like role model, or I wouldn't say a role model, but there have been people that I sort of look up to as like, wow, like they seem awesome. They seem like they're really focused on things that I care about. They seem like they're making some kind of forward progress or something. And over the course of my life, I've actually ended up meeting most of these people. And in most of the cases, once I've gotten sufficiently close, it's actually just really clear how like flawed and human everybody is, including those people that I did look up to. And so that kind of got me thinking like, well, what, what even is my conception of a role model? Is it just this like idealized figure? Like that, that's not even a like real person. When I got to know the like real person, they had all these other like flaws and things going on that I like wouldn't want to personally emulate. So like, what is my role model at that point? Feels like this fictitious concept or something. And like, I don't think it's bad to have some ideal that you're aspiring to but it feels a little bit weird to me when the ideal that you're aspiring to is like another human being who's who's not what you think they are actually so like yeah i mean i think you 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 obviously can admire certain things about certain people but i guess to me that just doesn't fit 
what I think of as a role model in my head or something. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I don't know if it's if it's just that, that I've that I've you know met my heroes, which you know folks always say like you know you don't want to actually meet your heroes, or if it's just because like the way that I conceptualize it is it is is sort of different than the way other people use role models in their head. But yeah, like for you, I guess what is the role of a role model and like how does that show up for you and how is that helping your life? Yeah, I think it's useful to think about people's specific traits that you admire and just sort of take them as see if you can simulate them and how they would handle different situations, especially if you think they are more skilled at a given trait than you are. So I, I personally find that useful. It's both as a way to explore ideas, but also sort of expand one's sense of possibility. And I think in the past, I have been somewhat constrained in what I thought was possible for me because of my view of who I was. Mm. And if imagining advice other people would give you or even imagining others in my place opened up the possibility space. And I think I've talked to a number of people who find that have been advantageous as well. Yeah. So I guess... I guess I can see how, how in some sense this kind of helps to have a specific real physical person that can, can think of that can fill this role. But for me, this almost feels like the domain of like spirituality and religion. It seems like what you're actually wanting to do is to embody the like divine essence of the virtue or something like that. That like to me feels much more like, like something you can sort of aspire to as an ideal because I'm really seeing it as a true ideal. I'm not trying to like emulate another person. I'm trying to like step into the best version of this thing that I can conceive of or something. Right. Yeah. I suppose there is this ambiguity of whether you are using a role model who's a real human learning from them, or if you're using the a person as a sage, where it's a perfectly virtuous person, and then it's more of a spiritual and deal idealized version of the exercise and i right. think i think and both are, are are useful but i th- actually i would find the latter using the contemplating a sage the ideal version of someone maybe even it's a fictional person to be especially especially useful yeah, because of some of the risks you mentioned with you know trying to take someone on as a more concrete concrete role model yeah i think for me it's just a little bit hard to use a concrete person in part because I feel like you almost sort of can't just like, extract the one feature that you like. I think that that like other people can and do influence who we are. You know, there's that phrase, like you are the average of the five people that you spend most of your time with. And I think something like that is basically true, but that also means that you're not just absorbing the good, you're absorbing the bad, you're absorbing all of it. And and, and like for me, if I want to be more like some, I don't feel like I can just take that one piece of it that I like. I feel like I, I sort of take on something about their whole being. Like there, there's something about their their entire mental system, if you will, that I take on. And, and, and like, I can't just use them as this like, idealized version of, you know, someone who's a generous or hardworking. It's more like I'm sort of importing this like entire process in and that has like, you know, lots of flaws and bugs and like all kinds of other things that that, that sort of come with it. 
So do you find that with the idealized version as well? Well, for me, it's more like I, I've lost the ability to idealize individual like living humans just because I have seen this play out way too often, right? And and like if I'm sort of conceiving of the sort of like perfect ideal, like yes, I can like sort of take on that aspect, but that that to me really feels like I'm just sort of tweaking a like internal variable in myself or something more more than it feels like I'm sort of looking up to something. If that makes sense. Got it. I think uh, that makes sense. Yeah. It is almost like a temporary buff to one aspect of my personality or something. Yeah, yeah. I suppose if you take the more philosophical or spiritual approach to it, it's that you are simulating this version of someone who many more people have simulated that includes these different values of your tradition. Yeah. And that's sort of informing what, what you are doing, even if there's a sense in which, sure, Stoics love to emulates people like Marcus Aurelius, Cato the Younger, Socrates. These people were, in the end, real people. Versions of them are somewhat mythical or at least compressed, and likewise for other, other religious traditions. Very much so. Yeah, and in some ways I think having like abstracted those virtues into a sort of like semi-mythical figure, even if they were based on someone actually real i think is creating that sort of idealized version that people can aspire to without all of the downsides mm -hmm. yep yeah i think so i think that's right well one, one fun question that i thought that you can answer or not as you choose one fun question that i wanted to ask that i should have asked earlier mm -hmm. is when i was talking to jimmy sony about the late republic and also he wrote the founders i thought it might be fun to ask you know which person is most like cato the younger from the founders and he mentioned that he thought he thought peter Thiel was the most like cato cato the younger does that does that seem right to you or not that's really funny you know i i think i'm, I'm a little hesitant to answer that directly because i think i would want to have a better handle on them before i weighed in on that i will say of kind of like the great founders are currently living the one who seems to be the most interested in ancient rome is probably mark zuckerberg which I do find really fascinating. As far as I can tell, I think in some part of his brain, he sees himself as like being Octavian or something. Uh, and I don't get that same sense from probably any of, of, of the other, you know, major founders of our time. So I'm not sure what to make of that, but I'll just <laughs> leave that out there. <laughs> yeah, I'll leave that out there. Right, very good. Excellent. Well, this has been great. Yeah, absolutely. It's been super fun. Thanks for listening to Stoic Conversations. If you found this conversation useful, please give us a rating on Apple, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you use, and share it with a friend. We are just starting this podcast, so every bit of help goes a long way. And I'd like to thank Michael Levy for graciously letting us use his music. Do check out his work at ancientliar.com, and please get in touch with us at Stoa at stoameditation.com if you ever have any feedback or questions. Until next time.